If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Gress. Join me and others as we travel on common flight paths with our guests, gaining insight and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Welcome back to another episode of The Warblers podcast. It is nearing the end of summer, which is kind of heart achy in a lot of ways, but it also means that our fieldwork and volunteer programs are starting to wrap up, which means that we get some really cool updates on how the seasons went, often get to hear some really positive news stories around this time of year. So it's a nice chance for me to touch base with my colleagues and just see how things have gone. There's one story in particular that I'm very excited about and can't wait to share with you. This is a really special story. It's a big, big win for conservation, and it's about my favorite bird, piping plovers. But this is bigger than a season update. We're going to be delving into the very first time that captive rearing has been used for this species in Ontario. It's been a huge collaborative effort on an international scale. There's some tragedy to this story, some drama, of course, but ultimately it's a really positive piece and we think it's important you know about it. By sharing these really big wins with you and making them public, it helps to secure even more support for large-scale and innovative conservation efforts in the future. We chatted about whooping cranes a few episodes ago, and that's another great example of a species that's benefited from large-scale international collaboration that wouldn't have been possible without public support. So for folks who are less familiar with piping plovers, we do have a full-length episode all about them that you can go listen to. But if you haven't yet, I want you to visualize a small, endangered shorebird that nests on sand and cobble beaches throughout Canada, but in very low numbers. Today's story focuses on the Great Lakes piping plover population, which is the most threatened, with only around 150 individuals. I spent five seasons working with these birds in Ontario, but have handed the reins over to Sydney Shepherd to lead the fieldwork for Birds Canada. She's been doing a marvelous job. We have Sydney joining us today to share all the drama and exciting conservation news. Welcome, Sydney. Hello, I'm very excited to share the story with you today. So much fun to have another plover nerd on the podcast. (laughs) Of course, they're just like the best bird ever. So, Before we start, I want to introduce listeners to Flash. He's kind of the main character in this story. So he's a little piping plover. His mom was killed by a snowy owl when he was just an egg. He was then hatched and raised in captive rearing in Michigan in 2018. He came to nest in Ontario in 2019, but his first nesting attempt was abysmal. He kept nesting too close to the water. His eggs were getting washed out. He just didn't quite get it. Uh, But the following year, he came back. He nested in the tiny township, and he fledged one chick. It was pretty good. The next year, he came back, same spot, fledged two chicks. Then in 2022, he fledged three chicks, just getting better and better each year, So despite his rocky beginnings, he gradually became one of our most reliable breeding males in Ontario. So Sydney, you know that Flash is one of my favorite plovers. What did you think about him when you worked with him last summer? Oh my goodness. No, absolutely. I think 
for me, when you work so closely with the species, especially when they have such low numbers, you really do develop favorites. And previously, I had sort of spent a lot of time working with Chewy, which Warblers um, folks may also know about Chewy's story. But so she'd always been my favorite. And then I started working a little bit more closely with Flash. And I completely understand what you mean. Something about him, his personality, his drive, his like goofy person, like just his his whole being uh, made him so easy to fall in love with. And not only me, but also the folks that were uh, beachgoers and cottage owners at the beach that he actually um, bred at absolutely fell in love with him. And just in talking with everybody and and hearing about how much love they have for this individual bird, I mean, it's hard it's hard not to fall in love with that little guy. He's he's an icon. He totally is. And I mean, we're talking about having eight adults across all of Ontario that we're watching. So that's how we know these birds uh, as for the individuals they are. But listeners might be familiar with you know a robin that nests in their backyard every single year. And the more you watch that individual, you start to see these little personality traits start to pop up. And man, Flash, but also Chewy. They're both really, really fun birds with a lot of character. Now, I said there was some tragedy in this story. Sydney, you called me in May with some bad news. Can you tell the listeners what that was? Yeah, this was not a fun day for me at all. Not only, you know, I didn't I didn't want to call you and, and sort of break the bad news, but it, essentially what happened is uh, Flash was nesting at Tiny Township again this year. He was all paired up with his mate Peppa, and things were looking really, really good. So they laid their first egg on May 8th, and by May 14th, uh, they had a full clutch of four eggs on that beach there. But unfortunately, through our regular surveys of that nest site, we realized that Flash wasn't there on the 13th. And again, he wasn't there on the 14th. And again, the 15th. And on the 15th, we were going to install our larger predator exclosure. So to keep those eggs nice and protected throughout the incubation stage. And that's sort of when I initiated the call to you and and said, you know, I think it's been a little while since we saw Flash. I think he might, unfortunately, be gone. Yeah, so tragic. And it is what it is with these birds. We don't always know what took them. But if they disappear while they've got eggs, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a giveaway, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, you know, we expanded our search efforts. We, we walked a little bit further down the beach just to make sure we weren't missing Flash when he was maybe off foraging or whatnot. But um, we also know him and we know that Flash is a pretty dedicated parent. So the fact that he wasn't around the, the eggs and helping Peppa incubate was really concerning. We also, unfortunately, saw a Merlin in the area nearby before and after Flash's disappearance. So kind of linking those together, we're pretty sure that Flash may have been predated by a Merlin, um, which is a big predator for piping plover in the Great Lakes. Yeah, a big predator, a small falcon, but certainly a big threat. <laughs> yeah, Small falcon, but mighty for sure. Mighty indeed. So you said that Flash had laid four eggs. What what happened next? Yeah, so with those four eggs and, and watching Peppa's behavior closely as well, his mate, we started realizing that Peppa was distancing herself from those eggs. 
You know, it takes a lot of energy for a piping plover pair to raise a set of eggs um, to become chicks and then fledglings. And of course, when that's now just one individual bird, they, they can't do it on their own. So Peppa started distancing herself and we were getting to the point where we were going to be reaching our abandonment criteria, um, essentially meaning that those eggs are now no longer being cared for by their parents. Once the abandonment criteria was met, um, under our special permit, we were able to collect those eggs, bring them to the Toronto Zoo for temporary incubation while we worked out um, border permits with our partners. And eventually those eggs were then transported to the Detroit Zoo. So the Detroit Zoo has been managing the captive rearing and release of piping plover in the Great Lakes since 1992. So we knew ultimately by that stage that the eggs were in really, really good hands. 100%. And then what happened with Flash's partner, Peppa? Well, this is where everything gets a little bit more chaotic. So I wish the drama uh, stopped there. But of course, a piping plover season is never drama free. Um, so essentially, Peppa now she abandoned her eggs and she's widowed with a whole bunch of time left on her hands of the breeding season. So she flew around to a nearby beach that also had piping plover and she was ready to try again. But uh, the problem was that the piping plover that were at that beach were already paired up. So we had Nancy and Gatasi that already had a set of four eggs um, to their to themselves. Um, Peppa then came in hot and kind of confused Gatasi. He was actually a first time breeder. So we understand, you know, the confusion, two lady birds in the area, the hormones, all that kind of thing. Um, but that ultimately led Nancy to abandon her set of eggs while Gatasi and Peppa were laying a whole other clutch of their own. But it doesn't again stop there. Peppa ended up abandoning her eggs a second time once Nancy came back to try and woo Gatasi. So all in all, we had quite a few nest abandonments there caused by one widowed bird that was just trying to, you know, set up her own nest all over again after the loss of Flash. Yeah, we're dealing with such a small population that all it takes is one disappearance, you know, one negative thing to happen and it can throw the, the whole thing into disarray, which is certainly what happened this summer. Absolutely. It was basically like watching trashy reality TV <laughs> and it was very fun to watch, but also, oh my goodness. Yeah, the technicians this summer made a reality parody called Plove Island, which I loved. <laughs> so accurate. So, so good. Okay, so we've got all these abandoned eggs. We've got like the like utter chaos happening and we're taking eggs to captive rearing for the first time. How many eggs did you get to captive rearing and how are they doing now? So all in all, after all that drama and all is said and done, we collected 11 eggs in total and those eggs were transported to the Detroit Zoo for captive rearing and release. Now, not all of those eggs were viable. Um, we collected them all on our end just to you know, cover our bases and make sure, of course, we don't want to leave any eggs hanging when we just don't know if they're viable to begin with. But out of those 11 eggs, we actually had three chicks that were captive raised and released back into the Great Lakes population. One of those birds 
Um, one of those chicks is named Woody, um, sort of as an ode to Woodland Beach where Flash came. And that's actually one of Flash's eggs there. We also had two other chicks that were um, raised and released from the drama at Wasaga Beach. Super exciting. So this captive ring facility is delightful. They they sort of mimic the brooding behavior with like feather dusters so that the chicks can pretend they're nuzzling up to their parents. And then they, as they age, they get released into larger and larger enclosures outdoors where they can kind of practice foraging and and they're all they're all hanging out together like a bunch of little teenagers. And so to finally have them get released in the last few weeks and to see photos of that, it's been oh, it's been wonderful. Wonderful to see the success of it. Absolutely. We had Woody released into New York State and his journey even just to get over there was pretty monumental. Uh, Woody was transported by airplane to get from Detroit or from Michigan to New York. And then the other two birds were also released in Michigan as well. But just like the, the, the story never ends for these birds. Oh, yeah. The effort, the collaboration, like I said, is is unreal when you think about not only effort, the, the effort on the Ontario side, but then going into the States to the amount of people who have been helping these little guys out is immense. This episode is sponsored by Birds and Beans. Honestly, this is my go-to coffee every morning. Birds and Beans was founded to help save migratory songbirds by roasting and selling only 100% Smithsonian certified bird-friendly beans. So if you drink coffee and want to help birds, check them out at birdsandbeans.ca. Free shipping in Canada for coffee orders over $45. Birds and Beans will even donate 10% from your coffee purchase if you order from birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers or use the link in the episode description. Birds and Beans, a richer taste, a richer earth. So what is the significance of this effort? And what do you think the field season would have looked like without captive rearing? Yeah, well, so this was the first time that we have um, sort of moved forward with having Ontario eggs hatch in captive rearing since since we've been working with this population on their conservation. So just the fact that we've been able to, you know, finally get to that stage where we're able to um, contribute to the population in two different ways, of course, with wild hatch and now captive reared hatch is very exciting. It gives us a, a second chance to continue to grow that population. And I really, you know, I don't know what the field season would have looked like without the captive rearing. It it means that we now have three more birds in the population, produced into the population that we wouldn't otherwise have had without this um, intense effort, which I think is, is really special. Um, every bird matters, especially when it is such a population, such a small population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really exciting to see it all come together, you know, Almost 50% of Ontario's eggs that were laid ended up getting abandoned in all, in all of this chaos. So had we not tried this extra effort, it's just, it's a huge loss, right? So like you said, every individual counts when we're dealing with these small numbers. Absolutely. And it's also just a little bit poetic because as you said in the beginning, Flash himself was a captivated bird. And so, you know, just the fact that Flash is able to continue to give back to the population in different ways is is pretty special. Kind of live on in his legacy. Oh, legacy. He's so, (laughs) so good. 
We need oh, more man. flashes in the world. Love Flash. Flash uh, overwintered in Alabama every single year. And when news of his loss spread, I got an email, a heart-touching email from the folks in Alabama who were sad that they wouldn't be seeing him this winter. Like, the, the legacy of this bird is unreal. It's beyond his reach, for sure. What's been the most interesting part of this whole experience for you? I think one thing that I've definitely learned in this uh, summer was never to to just sort of, these birds always keep you on your toes. And I think one of the, the most interesting things was not only to see how much effort, you know, I personally put in because I was just always on my toes there, but the intense effort that all of the folks that are involved are putting in. You are fielding my uh, phone calls at various hours of the day. Other folks in the States were also answering my questions at, at uh, weird, weird hours just to make sure that we were doing everything we could to help protect these eggs and, and conserve the species ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really, it's your, it was your first season leading it. And it's, it's hard to depict just how chaotic it was. And you did a fantastic job. They threw me into the fire. Absolutely. <laughs> they really did, but we love them no less. I think it makes me love them more, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Same. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this captivating effort has been a huge step in the right direction. So ensuring that these abandoned eggs get collected and they're given a second chance. But obviously, we would prefer the eggs hatch naturally on the beach. So if someone's visiting or they live nearby a piping plover beach, whether it's in Ontario, maybe it's in the Atlantic or the prairies, how can those people help this species? Yeah, and and just also we we did have uh, quite a few wild, um, successful wild hatches this year as well. So we're very happy to share that story. But um, if you are visiting a piping plover beach, one of the biggest things that you can do is sort of just respect the birds. Make sure you give them lots of space if you see them out foraging on the shoreline or maybe you see one of the parents brooding or protecting their chicks. Just give them lots of space to be birds. Sometimes you won't know that there's piping plover on the beach, of course, because they're, they are so tiny. But if you're on a breeding piping plover beach, um, there will likely be some psychological fencing that's set up to give the birds lots of space to incubate without any disruption. So make sure that you, you know, obey beach rules and signage, stay out of their breeding area, make sure that you um, also respect pet rules. So some beaches, pets have to be on leash. At some beaches, pets aren't allowed on the beach at all. So just make sure that you're respecting the local, the local beach rules and giving the birds lots of space to do what they need to do. For sure. Let birds be birds. And especially at this time of year, a lot of shorebirds are starting to migrate through parts of Canada. So whether or not you're at a piping plover beach, you could just be at a beach or a wetland area and you could be seeing shorebirds like the red knot that are have bred up in the Arctic and they're migrating down to South America or Central America. And they're doing, you know, thousands of kilometers, making sure those birds have the space to forage and fuel up while they're hanging out on the beaches in Canada is really, really helpful. So that's just a great PSA for shorebirds in general. Absolutely. So what do you think the outlook is for Ontario's piping plovers? And how about the Great Lakes population as a whole? 
Yeah. So as I said, this year, um, we were able to raise, we were able to have two piping plover nests successfully hatch, which is very exciting. And so Ontario produced five wild fledglings, as well as those three captive reared fledglings. So that's really, really exciting. And our hope is that those birds will um, have a successful southern migration and then northern migration in the spring, and that they'll come back and establish nests of their own. But across the Great Lakes, it was also a record-breaking year. It was a record-breaking year for pair numbers, for fledgling um, uh, productivity, and captive rearing productivity. So with all that said, you know, next year, again, we hope that we have even more piping plover that come up and establish nests of their own, and the population will only continue to grow from there. Yeah, I like that we can kind of end on a positive note that it's it's actually been a really successful season for the Great Lakes birds, despite a little bit of chaos and drama in Ontario and at other sites as well. Overall, the population appears to be growing. And so that's huge. Thank you so much for joining us, Sydney. And thank you so much for your leadership this summer. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thanks for always being there to support with all of the plover chaos. Totally, totally. And a shout out to all the people who helped, you know, Environment and Climate Change Canada, Ministry of Environment, Conservation, Parks, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Like we're talking huge, huge government partners here. Thanks to the Toronto Zoo, the Detroit Zoo, University of Michigan, tiny township with Sega Beach, the beachgoers, the volunteers. My goodness, if there's any story to convince you that, you know, it takes a team to support uh, species conservation, like this, this is it. And you can follow all of the Plover updates in Ontario at the Ontario Plovers Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. So thanks for joining us, folks, for yet another Piping Plover-themed episode. You know they're my favorite bird. Do you have one that you are obsessed with? Perhaps there's a favorite species or a conservation story that's happening here in Canada that you think we should be featuring. Please reach out. Let us know what we should be obsessing over. And... Otherwise, get out and enjoy that fall migration. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. Visit birdscanada.org slash warblerspodcast to make a donation today. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Kate Dogleash, Chris Koo, and Andrea Gress, with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep birding. <laughs>